you're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. I'm a DevOps dude, a course creator, and an open source maintainer in the world of container and cloud native DevOps. These episodes are edited down audio-only versions of my YouTube live show that you can join every Thursday at brett.live. This podcast is made possible by my Patreon members. I'd like to thank all of you patrons for your continued support. It means a lot. Your podcast player should have the show notes for this episode, including links to the original show on YouTube, topics or tools we might discuss, how to support this show with Patreon, and links to get discount coupons on all my courses. You can always get those notes and links at brettfisher.com. This episode is one of my favorite topics, team performance. It's not a favorite of mine because it's timeless or because it's everyone's concern, even though those things are true. It's because we're never done learning how to work better in a team or lead a team to better performance. My friend Laura Taco joins me to give us some of her wisdom from all the years of her being an engineering leader and experience in building high-performance teams on a multitude of companies and projects. She's now gone full-time consulting on this topic, and she's built a course. So that means I had to have her on the show to talk about the course she's running and all the research she did in building it. If I needed to train an engineering management team on how to improve their hiring, their firing, their DevOps metrics, and their team happiness and performance, then Laura would be the one I'd reach out to. We talk a lot of soft skills in this particular episode, which I know it's kind of a departure from my typical tool-driven focus, but you'll be able to tell by my excitement that this is something that I also care a lot about. We talk about Dora DevOps metrics, what those are, how to implement some of them, the new space framework, which I wasn't aware of, but I definitely like it because it's more comprehensive, and then common pitfalls people make in implementing those measurements and so much more. The show notes for this episode are chock full of links for more information on the topics we discuss, as well as for signing up for her newsletter, which I personally recommend, and for getting on the waiting list for her future workshops and courses. So thanks for listening, and here's Beyond DevOps Dora Metrics with Laura Taco. Hello, and welcome to my show. My name is Brett. Today, we're not even gonna talk about containers. We might say the word a couple times, but we're gonna focus really on the people and the processes and all the other stuff in DevOps that we don't talk a lot about on this channel. And I'm excited to have my friend, Laura Taco. Let's get to it. Laura Taco, welcome to the show. Hi, Brett. So <laughs> I gotta get that sound effect board away from you. <laughs> it's just so much fun when I have friends on and we, we already know each other in real life and we get to have fun with each other instead of, instead of the first person, the person I'm meeting for the first time. And I don't know if they like the class. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm here. I'm here for a good sound effect. It's great to see you again. Great to be on the show again. Hello to all of you out there in internet land. Yeah, very much. They're here. And a lot of them are here every week, which is fantastic. I just love that, that hopefully there's something always interesting on this show. And I can't wait to get into our subject today. In fact, the challenge today is that we don't go talking forever because there's so much to talk about here. For those that don't know, Laura has been on this show. I don't even know how many times now, a couple times a year. Uh, usually mm-hmm. on the end of the year wrap up where we talk about tech in general. And we both met years ago as Docker captains back at DockerCon mm-hmm. and were a part of the whole Docker swarm Kubernetes craze when they were all new projects. And it was a lot of fun and like exciting times. And I met so many people 
and that are now basically in the KubeCon community. So Laura, tell us real quick, you've made a big change in the last couple of years. Tell us what's going on. Yeah. What What is going on, Brett? That's a great question. <laughs> so like Brett explained, we met, I don't even know, I don't want to show my age, but it was probably, what, six or seven years ago. Docker just mm-hmm. celebrated, it's been more than that, Docker just celebrated their ninth birthday. And I know myself and I know Brett, you too have been working with Docker since, you know, since the year zero. So it's been close to a decade of our careers that we've dedicated to containers. And we've been there from, you know, Docker before Docker Compose existed, before Fig was acquired, all the way through Docker Mm -hmm. Cloud, Docker Enterprise, all these different changes. And now Docker is a cool place again. They're gaining a lot of momentum as a developer tool. And I'm so happy for them having watched that whole saga kind of unfold. I'm just so glad that they ended where they did. So I started as a as a infrastructure developer working with Docker and then transitioned into engineering leadership. I just became more interested in empowering teams, figuring out the right tools, setting technical strategy than coding every day. I could code a different time. So I would let my team do that. And I worked as an engineering leader, was the VP of engineering. And about a year ago, a little over a year ago, I decided to quit my cushy corporate job. And I started my own business as an engineering leadership coach. And I do some interim VP work and some other technical strategy advising work. But it's been really interesting getting a window into so many different companies and looking at how they're struggling, how they're succeeding, how they do DevOps, all these different things. And one question I get all the time is, how do I measure the performance (laughs) of my team? And that's what we're going to talk about today because we have Dora metrics, we have this new space framework. It's really hard to make sense of it all if you are a practitioner. So we can talk about it. Yeah, and it's a topic that doesn't get enough attention because we're all so busy doing the work, right? Like it's mm-hmm. rare for teams to step back, especially when they're needing these things so desperately, these improvements to their people and their processes and their mm-hmm. mindset. And yet the reason they don't have all that improvement is because they're not spending time on it, but they don't spend time on it because they're too busy doing the work. So it's like a conundrum. Yeah. Maybe that's part of the infinity single simple DevOps is like. It might be, it might be. I think the other place where practitioners really struggle is I've read all of these books. I've listened to these conference talks. I, I feel like I'm missing out on something. I feel like I can see what these other teams are doing with their continuous integration, continuous delivery, everything's containerized. I just don't know what I should do as step one to get there. And then you're faced with, you know, something like Dora metrics, which we can talk about in a little bit. And it it just feels overwhelming. You're not sure what lever you actually pull to influence those metrics and to get your team closer to high performing, whatever that means for your company or or in the industry can be really difficult to navigate. Yeah. So I just put the the link to her course, which we're going to talk about for a few minutes because it's very much related to this topic. And it's why it's one of the reasons Mm -hmm. why I wanted to have you on the show was because you're in the middle of it. You're talking to teams about it. You're creating content. And you probably go to bed sleeping about it. I mean, you're probably thinking about 24 hours a day. (laughs) And I wanted to get you on the show to get a brain dump of a lot of the knowledge that you've collected. Because from what I've seen, you've done lots of research trying to understand both the problem and the various solutions for a lot of this stuff. You want to talk about your course for a second? Yeah. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I have been doing a lot of research. I think that's one of the things that I find most fulfilling as an independent 
person now with my own business, as you can relate, Brett, is that we can choose how we spend our time. So as a VP or as a practitioner, it's really hard to dedicate dozens of hours to researching a problem. Sometimes it can be hard to defend that choice, but as my own boss, I get to decide what to do. So in building this course, I've read all the typical literature. We have the Phoenix Project DevOps Handbook. We have the Accelerate book. There are some new frameworks called, one called Space that is from Dr. Nicole Forsgren and some other co-authors. It's kind of the extension of Dora. It takes Dora to the next level when it comes to developer productivity and figuring out how can we measure how performant our teams are. Mm. And you know, I get asked this question all the time by staff engineers, senior engineers, but also engineering managers and VPs of engineering, which is just what are the right metrics to pick when I'm trying to measure my DevOps performance or my team performance. So I figured the easiest way for me to share all of that research and knowledge was just to build a course. It's an interactive workshop format. I give you templates. There's a metrics library. I teach you how to use it. If this is something that's interesting to you, enrollment is going to open up pretty soon for the next cohort of this course. So the other benefit is that you get to interact with other engineering leaders. So the last cohort, we had some VPs of engineering, a couple CTOs, two staff engineers. They're all going through this together and you get to learn as a group and see what problems they're facing and work together on, on things. It was a really rewarding experience. So you can join the waitlist if you want to get information about when the registration will open. Just head to, to that link if maybe Brett can drop it. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. And yeah, at the end of it, you're going to have defined your vision for engineering performance, what DevOps performance looks like. You'll pick metrics to track it and then build a dashboard and practice presenting it at your next all hands. And then also get to meet a couple dozen other engineering leaders who are doing the same thing as you. So it's a really rewarding thing. I'm really happy to be able to share all of the research that I've done in a way that helps more people than just having one-on-one -on -one conversations with folks day in and day out. Cause I do think about it all the time. I have woken up in the middle of the night thinking about developer productivity. So it's probably not a lot of people that have done that. <laughs> I can't sleep. Developers are unproductive. You also have a related to this. You have a newsletter that I wanted to mention. You didn't ask me to. I just wanted to mention it because I, I get lots of newsletters and I read, you know, a fifth of them. And I always mm -hmm. read yours. Thanks, because, Brett. Because it's got topics in it that are just so foundational to everything we do in our careers, and yet it's very practical. I find your problem and options for solutions approach to those problems in your newsletter really refreshing rather than just, here's a tool, it's new, check it out. <laughs> here's a tool, it's new, yeah. check it out. <laughs> There's so much subtlety and so much of like complex decision tree when you're picking a tool or figuring out how to approach a situation. So I always try to keep it, you know, blend the theory, but also the practice. And I don't want to just set you on one path. I want to help you understand how you can make the best choice for yourself, which takes more effort. And I understand why there's a lot of, look at the shiny penny over here, look at this yeah. new tool and go use it. That's just not really my style, but thanks Brett. And if you want to sign up, just go to my website, laurataco.com. Yeah. Yeah. I post, um, you'll get issues once a week. It's every Wednesday, unless I'm having like a really, a really busy week, then it's, then it might not happen. It might, it might come on Thursday, but I've got a lot of blog stuff. Yeah. yeah. There's no SLAs on my newsletter, but usually Wednesdays at like 3 PM European time, you'll get some tasty tidbits. I've been doing some newsletter exclusives lately as well. I've just been experimenting with not putting the stuff on my blog. You can only get it on the newsletter. Mm, so yeah. it's a good time. Yeah. So well, I mean, it's, I think, is this your first newsletter? 
Like this year is the it first is, time yeah. you've, yeah. I've never had a newsletter before. <laughs> so it's like, I, I really enjoy writing. And I think that was one thing that I loved about Docker in the early days was that there was just, you know, we had the Docker development docs and that was it. There was really no other content. So it was on people like you and me and like Jonas Roslin and, you know, all of the, and Phil Estes, like all of these OG Docker captains, we were just churning out blog posts and doing research and writing about it. And I really loved that. But as time went on, it just wasn't something that I could prioritize as part of my job. I've never been a developer advocate. And that's one thing that people might be surprised about that Docker captains or people who are often on stage, they're not developer advocates. They're just normal developers or leading teams. So it was yeah. hard to find time. Now that I can be more in control of my schedule, it's something that I make time for and prioritize. So this is my first newsletter, but I've been writing for a decade about more than a <laughs> decade, not, but just about, not in a newsletter format. Yeah, yeah. Just not in a newsletter form. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's going really well, I think, from my point of view as a reader. I pay nothing yeah, and I get knowledge that I didn't have. So <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, that's what what, what else could you I ask for out of a newsletter? Price. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's the latest topic in the newsletter? Ooh, my latest topic is a a doozy. It is about firing people. And I map out my mental model of when I have to make a decision to fire someone what I think about. And I was inspired to write this because on Tuesday of this week, I was a speaker at a conference about hiring developers. And I spoke alongside, not at the same time, but he was also a speaker, Roy Rappaport, who is a director at Netflix. And this question of hire fast, but fire faster came up. And he spoke very honestly about times that he's had to make a decision to fire somebody and what Netflix's position is and how he navigates that as the director at Netflix. So I thought I would just share a little bit about how I've had to navigate that, hoping that if you're a leader and you've had to make that decision, it's hard and people don't talk about it enough. But also if you've been on the other end or if you're worried yeah. about, do I have job security? You can have a little bit of insight into how leaders think about making those decisions. Hmm. That sounds like a good conversation to listen to. It's a hard topic to even think about both sides of that coin because everyone I know yeah. is trying to hire. They're always in the middle of hiring and they don't talk about that they're in the middle of performance hiring. improvement attempts performance with a particular, yeah, with an engineer. Yeah. And, and that's like the, the thing that people don't like to talk about a lot, mostly because I think one, it's a hard topic, but secondly, I, a lot of us, I imagine, don't feel like we're really good at it. So we don't want to admit that we know how we we can hire people, but we're not really great at helping them change or getting yeah. someone to re replace them. Yeah, there are so many places where you can learn how to be better at Kubernetes or how to be better at Docker, how to be better at Python. It's really difficult to find support for leadership in engineering, and that's why I built a business around it because. There's just not a lot out there and it is so important because those of you who are listening right now and you're an individual developer, you know how much harder your life can be if your management isn't great or if, right. if there's things that are just difficult to navigate in your org. It makes a huge impact on your day-to-day -day life as a developer. So I'm in a position to be able to change that and that's why I've decided to focus my, my energies there right now and try to help some people out. Yeah. Yeah, I've felt for over 20 years since I learned my lesson the hard way that when once you have the luxury, and, it's, and it is a privilege, choose your boss, not your job. And mm. obviously, at the that's early parts of your career, that's hard to do. You just want mm -hmm. a job, <laughs> you just, and you want a better paying job, and you know, you're focused on those kind of avenues. But once you've 
sort of gotten into the community and you know what you want to do and, and you get the, you're getting paid the way you want to be paid, then it's like, okay, now I need to find the, the boss that I want. And I was so lucky mm -hmm. early on to have both a wonderful one that is still a lifelong friend, actually introduced mm -hmm. me to my wife, so I owe him a huge debt of gratitude. Awesome, yeah. <laughs> one of the best bosses I ever had. And then directly replaced and I, I got a new job and was he was replaced by someone with bipolar who, who was the CEO and would just every day you were wondering if that was your last day. So it yeah. was a complete 180 and I learned right. pretty quickly yeah, what, what it was like to have both good and yeah. bad and how much that makes a difference in everything in your career. All right, so we're not here yeah. specifically to talk about <laughs> hiring and firing, but, but that, it's a great conversation. It, it would almost be its own show. Yeah. 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 Let's talk about DevOps metrics. Yeah, so in starting out this show, Laura and I actually had a conversation and we were trying to figure out where you are in the spectrum of, do you know what Dora is? Do you know what the metrics are? Do you then actually collect those metrics and then use them to decide if you're actually improving? And then are you ready for the next step? Which I think, Laura, you're saying is the space. Is that sort of like after you have the basic Dora metrics, you consider this new space? Thing. Yeah, I think so. If you haven't heard of Dora, I'm just going to cover it really quickly. Dora metrics, Dora stands for DevOps Research and Assessment. That's not very important, but you're going to hear Dora, and it's not a person's name, it's the name of the research organization that came up with the metrics. So, what Dora did was look at telemetry and quantitative data from hundreds of teams to try to figure out what are the characteristics of these high performing teams, like teams that are practicing DevOps very well and doing continuous integration, doing continuous deployment, they're hitting their business goals. That's really key. What are teams that hit their business goals? What are they doing that other teams are not doing? And they came up with four metrics that when you look at them, you could easily see a threshold for high performers. So this is deployment frequency, MTTR, change failure rate, and then cycle time. So that's the the time from commit to production. You can measure cycle time in, in quite a few different ways. And what they found was that teams that consistently outperform their business goals had a very low MTTR, so mean time to recover. They were able to recover really quickly because they were doing continuous deployment, continuous integration. Their cycle time was also lower. They had tooling in place to take something from code to cloud very quickly. Their change failure rate was very low because they had quality checks in place and their deployment frequency is high, not because their teams are doing more in less time, but because their batch sizes of work and the change sets themselves were much smaller. And that's really the heart of Dora is that working in small change sets and using automated tooling and sufficient quality checks allow you to move really fast. So using Dora metrics can kind of help you to see where are the problems? Are we able to deploy really quickly? How quickly can we recover from an outage? It answers those questions for you. Right. Google acquired Dora. So now you're going to see Dora metrics in a lot of marketing material for Google Cloud. It's hard to find a page on Dora where they actually focus on these metrics and defining them. Yeah, it, it's because it's the promise of you can become elite if you look at the, the Dora metrics, which if you see that, I'm just telling you right now, your radar should be going off. It's marketing. It's marketing. Right. The, the metrics themselves don't make you elite. It's what you do with them, the changes that you make. It's more than just having a dashboard. 
Yeah. And I think obviously it's like the step one is knowing that those metrics exist. And then there's mm-hmm. this, to me, there the people that I see, there's a chasm between knowing that they exist and casually thinking about them on a semi-regular basis and then actually collecting them, having a place where the team can agree on them, see historical trends. Mm-hmm. And like to me, that's this wide chasm that a lot of teams just never, they never get through they it. They never cross it. They perceive improvements through just like happy customers or happy teams that they w- mm-hmm. collaborate with, but they don't really know these metrics because they're not actually measuring yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. And this is an interesting point is that when we talk about productivity, which is different from performance, right? So Dora metrics are all about company performance and team performance. So for example, am I shipping a feature that's robust, well-tested, easily extendable? Am I shipping it to production quickly so that my users can use it and get the value out of it and hit my business goals. That's performance. Productivity is more like, you know, am I keeping busy? (laughs) There is some place where those two things overlap. And for some people, they're exactly the same thing. You can't be productive unless your team is also performant. And for some people, they're totally separate. That like, I can be productive and do a bunch of things all day, but if I build the wrong thing, that's not my problem. Mm. So, And this is something interesting that came out in my research for the course was developers have a very different definition of productivity than managers do. But what's even more interesting is that developers have the wrong idea of what their managers think that managers view as as productivity. So developers rated that activity is all about productivity. So how many PRs I close, how many lines of code I write, how many tickets Mm -hmm. I close, that's what they view as productivity. If I'm productive in a day, it means that I've done a lot of coding. They also think that their managers think that way. But when the managers were interviewed, the manager said, I don't care about how many PRs you close or how much code you write. I care that the quality is there for the features that we ship to production. And I care that it's aligned with business goals. So there's like Mm. this two-sided definition, which as you said, it makes it really hard for teams who might be aware of Dora metrics to do anything with them because fundamentally we don't even have an agreement on what productivity and performance actually mean. Right. It's really quite a difficult place to be. (laughs) Right. It's hard to make sense of it all. And that's why I'm sorry to any of you who joined this, hoping that I was going to give you the sentence, the one sentence answer to what productivity is or what performance is or the one metric that you should track because research has shown time and time again, and this is research from hundreds of companies over the last decade, there just isn't one definition of performance or productivity. There's not one metric that matters and you need to have those conversations with your team in the context of your business goals to come up with the definition that works for you. It is more work and there's no shortcuts here. Unfortunately, I wish I could offer offer you one, but I can't. Yeah, I think both of us have countless stories. Yeah, obviously you more than me since you've been doing this research, but every team has a different problem that is impeding their Mm -hmm. ability to even know or know where they are. Because you got to know where you are before you can navigate to where you want to be. And the challenge is taking that time to not work in code, to not close PRs and actually sit in virtual or physical rooms together, working on what should we be tracking? Mm -hmm. What would improve the business objectives and make the CIO and the other stakeholders 
happy about our performance. And sometimes those things we talk, we go down a rabbit hole of like code quality versus code completion, like closing tickets versus with crappier code that's making the app worse is something that I see a trend with teams that are just struggling to get through this stuff is they're like, they're just, they're closing PRs, they're doing the same thing you're saying engineers are focused on. And yet if they take time to improve things or think a bigger picture about the actual problem and try to solve it Mm -hmm. holistically, it hurts their numbers, like closing tickets, closing PRs. And so they're not driven to do it. And this is- They avoid it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And to me, that seems like a management problem. Yeah, well, this is a perfect segue into the space framework. Hmm. So Dora is really focused on how efficiently code works through your DevOps system. It's talking about like from the time of commit, does this code get to production quickly, reliably, safely? And it's really about that efficiency and flow. Mm -hmm. But in the original paper about Dora and in Accelerate, those four metrics are contextualized and it says it's important that there's a focus on quality. It's important that there's a focus on developer satisfaction with their working environment and all these things. But because that's not a nice checklist with four key metrics, right. we've kind of collectively forgotten about it. You know, Google doesn't have that on their landing page for Google Cloud about right. become an elite team by doing these four, you know, looking at these four key metrics, but also caring about culture and caring about whatever else. We just kind of forgot about that. So Space was an attempt, and I think a quite a good attempt to take all the research that went into creating the Dora metrics, but also give more color to what productivity and performance actually are. So space stands for satisfaction and well-being. That's like, are developers happy? Are they fulfilled with the work? Performance, and this is all about, are we building the right thing? Did the thing that we shipped have the intended outcome on our customer base? It also encompasses things like quality and reliability. So are we as a team performing to the expectation that we're shipping high quality code? Yeah. The activity part is all about the outputs. And that's what you said, that developers feel like they can't take a break from just writing code and grinding and getting it done to focus on that performance and quality piece. That's the A in space. That's the activity part. So this is all about story points would come here, PRs close, all those things. Then we have C which is communication and collaboration. This is another part that's really important for productivity because it's the future-proofing step. If you spend more time communicating, writing documentation, it actually helps you move faster in the long run, but it will immediately impact your activity metrics negatively because you won't be coding, you're gonna be doing something else. And then the E is about efficiency and flow, and that's where those Dora metrics show up. So Dora is still included in space. It's just not the main emphasis of space. So looking at it through those five dimensions, you know, that conundrum that you just explained, Brett, it comes so clearly into focus because that's a team that really values the A, but isn't valuing the performance part or the satisfaction and well-being part. So things just kind of get out of balance. So the Dora metrics that we've been talking about, those are just one of the letters (laughs) in this. Yeah. Dora comes into that efficiency and flow piece. So Space, I find as a leader, it's kind of like that aha moment of like, oh, satisfaction is just as important as activity. These are all, you know, obviously they're not going to all be weighted equally, but it's important to know, like, I have to consider all of these things together. Dora is a nice checklist. It's 
sim simple to use. There's tools. There's this whole economy of developer productivity tools that are built around tracking door metrics. It's, you know, on a relative scale, it's easy to implement. Space is new. It's very ambiguous. And I think it's very difficult for leaders to read it and figure out, okay, this is what the research tells me is the right approach, the research that we have now. I'm sure this changes in two years or three years, but it can be hard to kind of bring down to earth and figure out how to apply it in your teams. Yeah, I was sitting here just imagining what that would be like, some sort of survey I have to take mm -hmm. monthly or something that sort of gets those soft, the feels, right? A lot of these are feelings yeah. of, am I is this going well? Are things the way I would expect? And yeah, that can be challenging. There is a new tool that I'll, I'll plug right now. It's called Developer Experience or DX. And it's I think it's getdx.com. So DX is some people, GitHub, Git Prime, which was acquired by Pluralsight. It's now called Pluralsight Flow. They were a big player in the developer productivity game. And what DX does is it is a, a developer experience platform. I think you like what you said is a very common reaction of like, oh, I have to just think about the feels or like the qualitative data that's not as valuable as the quantitative data. That's actually not true which I was very surprised about. And a lot of people are surprised when I tell them about this, that self-perception matters more when it comes to team health and the quantitative data or the telemetry data. Because when you add self-perception into this de definition of productivity, it feels less like surveillance and a bit more empowering and information that can actually be actionable. Hmm. So DX has built their whole product around it's kind of, if you've used a tool like Pecan or Office Vibe or Lattice, these are like engagement surveys that ask you, how do you like your manager? How do you like the culture right. of this company? But like specifically for engineering. So it's like, how do you feel about our CICD processes? What do you think the bottlenecks are? How do you feel about the code quality? Do you feel like we have to cut corners? How do you feel about the technical debt that we have? And usually okay. when you ask developers those questions, they know where the problems are. You don't need to right. look at Dora metrics. Your developers know. So it's, you know, I find it a very compelling way to just like harness the information that your developers already have before overly complicating things with trying to get telemetry data that's actually not going to tell you as much as you think it will or as much as you hope it will because your developers already have the answer most of the time. Yeah, so could we sum it up as... Dora is how is the code doing and space is how is the team doing? <laughs> I think that's that a great way to sum it up. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a good way. And I think space adds some richness on top of Dora where, I mean, Dora has some built-in tension because you have change failure rate, but also deployment frequency. So those things are, they kind of keep each other in check where if you have very high deployment frequency, but then you also have a really high change failure rate doesn't really help anything. You're not really making right. progress. In a lot of ways, you could make it worse. And space really encourages that tension with the five dimensions, but then also balancing self-perceptive metrics, such as, are you satisfied with our code review process? That's a great metric where you might also have how many PRs were reviewed or how many PRs were merged without a code review. Those are kind of addressing the same thing, code review processes, but they're addressing it in really different ways. And to me, I find how satisfied are you with our code review processes? I find the answer to that much more actionable and much more interesting than just a static number of how many PRs were merged without a plus one, for example. 
the plus one. Looks good to me. <laughs> okay, so space is new. It's a little bit mm -hmm. less about the code. So let's talk about the journey for a minute. I guess that's where I'm getting to. It's like, yeah. you're in a team. The team isn't doing any of this stuff. Where do you start? You tell your yeah. boss to read the DevOps handbook? Like how? <laughs> I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, read the DevOps handbook, read the Phoenix project, read Accelerate, do all this stuff. Where I would start, if you're a developer who's like, mm, everything around me is broken, we're accruing technical debt so quickly, I don't even know where to start because just everything just seems jacked up. I would start with a survey, quite honestly. You can just do it in Google Forms and ask a question about like, where do you think the problems are? They can be open-ended questions, or you mm. can say, how satisfied are you with our code review process or our deployment process or how many manual steps? It is surprising how much data you will get from that. So if you're not having retrospectives that have action items that come out of them or having actual good conversation about what changes to make in your development process, that can be a really good way to get that information. Just starting with the survey. And once you've identified what it is that you care most about, every team's gonna care about something different. Some teams might care more about shipping frequently. Some teams might care more about not accruing tech debt. There's gonna be different objectives, but once you figure out what it is that you care about, then you can go ahead and pick the metrics. That makes sense. So you kind of wanna start with what your goals are and get your team involved with defining that and then work backwards from there instead of doing it the other way around, which is right. what a lot of teams do. And then it doesn't work because you've missed out the conversation about what you're actually trying to achieve. And when we say goals here, we're not talking about Epic 25 being finished on time. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're per not some, talking about that. For some project, product manager's definition of when it should be done or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These are This is stuff that's so much more fundamental, but I find... And maybe my view is biased, right? So we're all living these worldviews. And as a consultant, you're not brought in because everything is wonderful. A consultant usually is brought in because they need help, right? Yeah. And so I tend to see a lot of what I would just call it like team dysfunction around mm -hmm. understanding how to be better rather than yeah. understanding that, oh, I need to learn a new tool or I need a new certification mm -hmm. or I need to... We need to move this to a new language, like all these very implementation specific ideas rather than what bosses, I think, sort of did end up gravitating to is how do I get the team? We've had miscommunications lately and we're shipping the wrong code to production. And how do I, mm -hmm. you know, the, the customer didn't see the idea until we shipped it. And they didn't like the, our implementation of their idea. Yeah. And, you know, how do we fix that? And, and they tend to think a bigger view, but they don't always ask the team for their thoughts on how to improve it. <laughs> sometimes they just mm -hmm. think it's their job to think up the, the solution to that and then tell the team when sometimes, like you're saying, the, the team sometimes knows what's happening. They're just not being asked yeah. what they think the solution is. Yeah, so that's interesting. 100%. So there's a lot of information from the team that's so helpful. I think the other thing to consider is like the pressure that sometimes gets placed on managers of development teams to provide that one metric, that one measure because they need to defend budgets for their team. They need to somehow quantify performance. If you look at sales, you look at marketing, these teams all have nice metrics. It's revenue, qualified leads. These are nice tidy indicators of how productive or how performant a team is. And for engineering, it's really hard to find that because largely we don't dictate what we work on. We figure out the how, 
but oftentimes the priorities are coming to us from other people. So it's a bit unfair to measure an engineering team based solely on like user adoption, because that engineering team is probably not making the decision specifically about what to build. They should have input. And some teams are far on the end of the spectrum where they're just getting a spec from a product owner and they're expected to build it. Some teams are on the other end where they're an active you know, stakeholder, they're at the table, they're coming up with solutions. Some engineering teams don't have products to work with. They're doing it all on their own. So it's there's just such a variance in terms of why even bother measuring productivity to start with. And then how can you harness the information that your team already has to just cut a few corners and get to the outcome quicker than mm. building out a huge dashboard with all these metrics? Yeah. Question, mm. what is productivity in the point of view of business as usual and from the point of view of consultancy, contractors, and project-driven? Yeah. Question. I think what this question is asking is, would I measure the productivity of a in-house business as usual team in the same way that I would measure the productivity of outsourced or nearshored contracting team? I think that business as usual teams, so like an in-house team, that satisfaction matters a lot more because it's much more expensive to hire them and to retain them and to onboard them. Whereas, you know, project-based contractors, if the project ends and they don't want to work with you anymore, they're going to go move on, but you're also going to move on. You're going to lose some institutional knowledge. But I find that when I work with leaders who are managing an in-house team, there's a lot more emphasis put on satisfaction and well-being, making sure that they have ample time to code, and then if they're managing an outsource team, it's more about the activity, staying on schedule, making sure they have everything that they need in terms of specs so that they can deliver with quality. That's very important for consultancy teams, but then also on time. The satisfaction and well-being, I hate to say it, it's just reality doesn't play as big of a role because the stakes are just a bit lower with the, the employment model. Right. They'll just move on. And if they're in employment, if it's a contracting team, in theory, that's done by the contracting company. <laughs> like that's, yeah, they're the employees yeah. of that company. They, yeah, that's a great point. A similar question to what we talked about a while ago: How do you build Dora teams from scratch? Hmm. I, I, I've not heard that term. Question. Dora team. I like. Yeah, it. we're a Dora team. <laughs> yeah, that is an interesting question, and I think it it kind of speaks to a couple levels of like how Dora is used. So there is no such thing as a Dora team. I would say. Dora is just a tool that you can use to measure how quickly work can flow through your deployment processes. But if you're looking for a team that does very well and performs very well on Dora metrics, start with automated testing and an automated deployment process from day one. And by doing those two things, you will naturally fall into that elite, that elite tier according to the, like their Dora has different kind of tiers of how well you perform. It's very, very difficult to not perform well according to the Dora metrics when you are following best practice from day one. It just becomes so ingrained into your team culture. And that is honestly the best possible scenario is when you can bake those things into your team from day one instead of having to retrofit them, which is I think the situation that a lot of you who are listening right now are probably in. You're, you're trying to figure out how do I modernize? How do I bring these practices to my team? versus starting a team from scratch where you can make that decision to to start with CI/CD from the beginning, start with containers from the beginning. Right. We all have the things that we are particular about. Like for me, the automation is key 
And I'm so I'm glad mm -hmm. you put that up front. Uh, you mentioned the survey earlier. We were talking about using a, a survey to the team to see what their levels of satisfaction are that might be part of that beginning. But when it comes to the ground level tactical stuff, the other thing that's really big for me, especially kind of related to the size question we'll get into later about hiring and keeping talent is what is the on, how hard is it for a new person in my team or a new person on the project to get up to speed, particularly when it comes to yeah. the engineering side of the house? And mm -hmm. is the culture in my team of helping one another? And those two things, ironically, seem to be closely related. If I see no documentation, mm -hmm. if I don't see people putting videos, uh, nowadays I'm seeing teams that are actually starting to add video to the documentation and into the, you know, they'll make a link That's to a video demo inside the PR and they'll do other things mm -hmm. that are a little bit easier to get across in video. And if I see uh, a GitHub organization where there's no readmes in any repo, if mm -hmm. their documentation isn't linked from the code, if I have to talk to five people to figure out the deployment process, because I've, I've got new code that I want to PR and deploy, but I, there's nothing that's going to help me through that process. If I don't even know mm -hmm. the right permissions or the right authorizations I have to have to get things going, and I have to go talk to my manager every time, that to me is also a big, I mean, I don't know if it's one of the core metrics necessarily, but it's a big. That is, that is C. Yeah. That is the whole C category of space. Mm. It sucks to work on a team like that, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, when everyone's out for them, I mean, they're not necessarily out for themselves because that's a little bit more of an aggressive, passive aggressive sort of yeah. uh, scenario. But it, it's where you're not trying to be empathetic. I feel like it's just the, the, the core fundamentals of maybe like the psychological view of that is that you're not paying any attention or having any empathy for your coworkers enough that you realize, oh, they don't just they don't know everything, and I don't know everything, and every new person is definitely not going to know everything about what we're doing and what we're all doing, and mm -hmm. we all need to be better at helping everyone else. I, I tend to o over communicate. So I'm putting in the long mm -hmm. Slack threads and the long PR yeah, yeah. descriptions and updating the readme every time I put some significant piece of infrastructure code into place because I want, I'm always planning for my relief, my, the person who's going mm -hmm. to replace me because none yeah. of us have a job for 50 years anymore. So, and even if you did, you wouldn't have the same position. <laughs> so yeah, it's, you, you've got to, you got to think about those people. Yeah. I think you talked about the individual side of that, which is maybe you're just not thinking about the person who's going to come and take your place. I think there's also people who behave that way because they get punished if they do it or that kind of behavior like communication, collaboration, documentation is not rewarded or incentivized right. by their organization because there's just such an emphasis on hitting deadlines and there's never enough time. And those kinds of things are always, you know, the kind of the first to fall off when you're faced with super, super tight deadline. We can, we talk about how quality is often a trade-off, but communication, collaboration, onboarding, yeah. those are also big trade-offs in those situations too. Yeah, I always used to think, this is a long time ago, I used to think that security and documentation were always the two two things to fall off the plate first. When arbitrary yeah. deadlines are set for engineering that they can't achieve without cutting corners. And yep. that's a great, communication is a great one that I didn't think about, but we're not gonna get into security today, but security is a feature. And it, yep. if it's not considered or improved in every way, every time, I, I feel like it just, yeah, it like documentation just, gets to the point where it's such a huge amount of debt. I mean, I guess there's documentation yeah. debt. I guess that's a form of tech debt. We all think Yeah, of. that's true. Security debt, documentation debt. Yeah. There's a lot of corners to be cut. Yeah, and I think that, as you said, arbitrary deadlines, which often don't, like, where do they come from? I mean, we wanna stay accountable. We wanna stay on a plan, but 
you know, some definitions of performance, like I was talking about before, include quality. So if we're cutting corners and shipping crap, does it matter that we can do it faster? <laughs> can we ship junk to production faster? That doesn't really get us where we want to go. Yeah, I think that the default stance of an engineer is also they tend to focus on code quality. Like if that's bad, that's the thing that needs to be fixed. They but feel quite bad. often yeah. I'll walk into teams and code quality is poor, but they also don't test and they also don't automate testing or automate deployments. Mm -hmm. And I love your idea of start with automation of CI and CD, the, the testing automation, the deployment automation, and a lot of these other things will creep out slowly out of that and they'll expose themselves. Yeah. I did this recently with a team where we were focusing on automating parts of their deployment so that mm -hmm. not just one person on their team knew how to deploy the code because that one person was really good at it, but they were the one of two of a team of, you know, 10 or more. And yeah, they need I a vacation. Yeah, they, they need to be able to take a break and not have to log in from remote from to deploy code. So, and yeah. I wanted the managers to feel like they could do it too, right? Like even though they weren't engineering yeah. code every day, I wanted them to know that there's this process, it's documented. So we started to automate it and very quickly it they realized, well, they're, how are we all gonna know what the process is? And I was like, well, is it in the documentation? Well, we don't have any documentation. Yeah. Put it in the README. Every GitHub, yeah. every Git repo has a README, or hopefully it does. I think that most of them enforce mm -hmm. it now, at least ask you, would you like a README in your repo? Yeah. Put yeah. one in there and put your deployment process in there or a link to something that mm -hmm. shows your deployment process. And so that started the, pro the conversation around, okay, so if we have this documented and people don't have the permissions, it says in there what permissions you need. And so I didn't yeah. realize it, but I was, I was kind of following your advice that we were implementing CD without fixing all these other problems first, but it would then highlight other issues. Like they didn't have testing yet. So we deployed a mm -hmm. broken thing, right? We automated yep. broken things faster into production. And that yeah. exposed the fact that there wasn't good automated testing like they needed in order to find those bugs they had just introduced in the latest commit. So, yeah. Yeah. I've seen teams get stuck in analysis paralysis in that, that state that you've just described where they're not automating anything. They don't have automated testing. Everything's manual. And they just think I can't do CD because I don't have hundred percent code coverage and I don't have all these other things. I get it. My philosophy is just like do do CD and work backwards from there because the CD will expose all of the high impact problems so that you're not trying to solve everything all at once. You can do CD and do it to not production. I mean, you can do it to a different, right. like a, a pre-production environment. You don't need to put your business at risk, but you'll find out pretty quickly once you have that loop fully closed, where the most important things, where the most important projects are so that you don't get stuck in this. Like, well, we can't do that's not for us because we don't have 100% code coverage. Yeah. In fact, I often with teams never take them I'm never around when we go full auto deployment. Mm -hmm. It's more like I try to automate enough of that deployment process so that anyone with the right permissions can do it. And I don't mean permissions like yeah. they log into the server and have root. I mean like the, the repo says, go to this other repo, make a PR, change the name in YAML, or the, at this point it's all container tags, change the container tag yeah. that you're deploying and then get it approved by someone else and then it deploys. So it's still, they still mm -hmm. perceive it as a human-based step, a human-based process, mm -hmm. but it's automated so that someone's not reading a 20-page Word document and then having yeah, to like, yeah. I need this VPN and I need this server access and I need this 
AWS account and all these other things that they just they don't really mm-hmm. need to have. So we talk about that yeah. a lot in this show, so I don't want to go down that rabbit hole too much because we've had shows talking all about automating deployments and using all sorts of tools. We had yeah. Argo on last week talking about automated deployments. So Dora is often tied to high-performing teams. And that's a question I get asked a lot. Is what is a high-performing development team? And we can look at Dora metrics to kind of point us to a high-performing development team should have a deployment frequency of, you know, you should be able to deploy on demand. And maybe that means multiple times a day. Maybe it means once a day. It it might mean once a week, just as long as on demand is on demand. Maybe this is a shortcut, but how long does it take a new developer until they can ship their first piece of code to production? Does it happen on their first day at the job? Or does it happen three months after they start their job? Right. That To me, that is a great measure of where you are with Dora metrics. But then also, as you're touching on, how is your documentation? Is everything clear? Can people get the information that they need when they start ramping up? At Codeship, when I worked there, we had every developer who started shipped something to production on their first day. Mm. So that meant their development environment had to be set up. They had to understand all the deployment processes. They had to find a change, fix the change, get it uh, into production. But it was because everything was automated and we had really great documentation. It happened within a day. That's definitely maybe not an outlier so much anymore, but I think for a lot of people that seems far-fetched, like impossible. Like how could, you know, how do we get there from here? But it's all just these incremental changes, adding more automation, deciding on what to focus on first and not trying to do everything all at once. Yeah, uh, that reminds me of that movie that just came out, Everything Everywhere All at Once. That's a great point that you don't go from three months, three months in doc to one day in doc overnight. Like you, you, you realize a new person. And the thing is that I think sometimes we say this to people and we say, yeah, you should really improve your onboarding by putting in better documentation, putting in readmes, putting in walkthroughs, mm-hmm. including videos. Cause it's amazing to me how I can explain something to someone in 60 seconds on video that would have taken three paragraphs in a written form. Yeah. And uh, most of us are a lot of us using Slack and Slack has that little button now that you can actually add video right on the spot. It's pretty great. But the reality is getting from three months to one day is a journey. But at the same time, it's not just about the new people. I often find that how you treat the new person and expect them to have to go through this whole process to get all these tools, but those tools aren't documented. And what mm-hmm. tools do, do you have to have versus the tools that you can just choose like your editor? And what's the happy path? All those things. Those are also, to me, very much about your existing team and how you mm-hmm. and how kind and helpful you are to other team members. Let's go down to this comment. My office forces 90% sonar quality gate. What we do is simply add files to exception and not write unit tests. This is a really, I mean, it's kind of a funny example, but this is a great example of this thing called Goodhart's Law. I'm, I'm going to speak about Goodhart's Law at Lead Dev in London next week. So Goodhart's Law, if you've not heard it before, it is that when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. So certainly that 90% quality gate is, I mean, it's there for a reason, but now that it's a target, it's not really a good measure because you found a way to game the system. So when we talk about Dora metrics and we talk about even the space framework and choosing metrics, you have to be aware that when, you know, code coverage is a great example of this. If you set a metric or set a measurement for like, we must have this much code coverage, people, human beings, this is not just about developers, but we will find a way to game the system. It will no longer be a good measure once you make it a target and incentivize hitting it. So we see this happen all the time with Dora metrics, for example, where deployment frequency, oftentimes when we talk about 
door metrics and de deployment frequency comes up, then I get the question of, well, I'll just split up my work into smaller PRs and we can achieve that better deployment frequency, <laughs> which is like, it's Goodhart's law in practice, but actually that's kind of the point. Yeah. That's kind of the whole point of Dora is that the smaller the change set, the lower the risk. So go ahead and do that. Right. <laughs> it's kind of one example of Goodhart's law being actually positive for a team. But there's a lot of ways that it can be negative for a team. If you can imagine putting a metric on lines of code, mm -hmm. that incentivizes the wrong behavior completely. Right. So maybe just as a word of, your, of yeah. warning as well. Yeah, it's like I could write this as a one liner or I can write it on three lines because I have some arbitrary lines of code metric to meet. Yeah, that's a hard this, one, too. Yeah, I have another good example of this. This is a tweet. It's actually from like earlier from 2021. A friend's org has decided to track these metrics to track IC productivity, Jira tickets closed, changes pushed, number of comments on code review. I predict a round of promotions for some very simple Python scripts. Like this is a great, I, I mean, I laughed at this. I still find it very funny, but it just kind of goes to show as well. I think we have surveillance on one hand where developers don't want to feel that every keystroke is being tracked in their productivity. But we also have like silliness or just stupidity on one hand as well, where Metrics are only good if you can actually do something useful with the information. So trying to reduce down all of the complex work that a developer does into Jira tickets closed just can make you as a leader um, or as an organization lose credibility really quickly because developers see through it that it's not a great measure. It, it lacks so much depth in, in what a developer does all day long. It's saying that if you spend all day designing architecture, that's less valuable than if you were writing code. And that's right. not always true. Right. Yeah. It's almost like a lazy metric if it's blindly followed like that. that yeah. That's a term, but lazy metrics. Lazy metrics. It's vanity metrics. Is, vanity metrics. That's the one. Yep. That's the one. Metrics without meaning. And it's funny because those things do need to be tracked. Like we do need to be aware of those, but that's not the deciding factor. It's just like one piece of evidence in this you know, that if you see an outlier liar in a certain metric, you look at the rest of the metrics to understand, oh, maybe this isn't a problem because we can see whatever, that they have less PRs, but that's because they're, they were in 20 meetings last week. And yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, I have an example of that. This is from, again, the talk that I'm going to give next week, but here's a great example of what you've just described in action, vanity metrics in action. This is a, a graph of pull request activity the higher the spike, the more pull requests are merged. So we can look at this and think, oh, what, what happened during these two spikes? Obviously the team was like really productive that week or doing something really great because they had so many more PRs merged. This is a perfect example of a vanity metric because alone, this doesn't really tell you anything. Right. Just as we're very curious about those spikes, we should also get really curious about the valleys. So. It might be, as you said, oh, everyone was in a bunch of meetings, so maybe someone was on vacation. But what if before you had to have a separate PR for database migrations and you made a change so that you no longer had to do database migrations in a separate PR? That is going to cut your PR activity quite down quite a lot, but it doesn't mean that you're less productive. You're actually more productive. But that metric doesn't, it doesn't really just show you that, the metric alone. So there's a lot of subtlety here. Yeah, that's a good point. I've, I've seen this example where when we implement CD, the developers get to actually 
do the deployments themselves by making PRs and other repos, which makes their PR count soar because they might be Mm -hmm. needing to do one in a Kubernetes repo and then another one in an Argo repo. And now for every code commit, they're doing three PRs. It's essentially every code PR, they're doing three PRs. Yeah. Yeah. And I made this point of the tension before as well. So in Dora, we have change failure rate, which is how many times does a defect make it to production and deployment frequency. This is kind of that that same thing where looking at this pull request activity, we were all ooing and eyeing about these spikes. But if you overlay incidents on top of the pull request activity, it tells a really different story. So suddenly hmm. those spikes in PRs, they don't look so good. Either there were so many more PRs because there was an incident or there was an incident because there were so many more PRs. So this is kind of the gotcha when looking at developer team productivity metrics is that it's not just one dimensional. You need to look at multiple things at the same time to get a clear picture of what's actually going on. All right. We have a question. How different Dora metrics are from DevSecOps lean agile models? Yeah, I would say Dora is not competing with lean or agile models or competing with DevSecOps. It's just simply a way to measure how quickly work makes it through your system. So you can use Dora with any kind of team. It's not a particular way of getting work done. It's just a way to measure. Right. And if you're if the sec team was doing something with this, which would be amazing. Security teams aren't always the the leading edge engineering teams that the sometimes that the engineers are sometimes they're really small they're understaffed but if they're starting to do things like infrastructure as code or whether it's their analytics systems that they're tracking and get then they can start to track this stuff i can see how at first if you're not a, a really mature security team it would actually be hard to track those metrics because it's all logging in the servers clicking buttons running mm-hmm. a desktop app and re- spitting out a report and stuff like that that's maybe not trackable unless every piece of their work is in a, an issue. But that's part of the challenge is if they want to measure their performance, it can't always be just in security incidents or lack of security incidents. It has to be some of this other stuff too. Yeah. I think, you know, take, extending it beyond just security team, I think a lot of teams are in a space where they don't have automated quantitative data or telemetry data, like specifically around deployments, if it's manual deployments. And I think with productivity metrics, I think there's a bit of a myth that you need to have this like super fancy dashboard with all these graphs and automatic data coming from your CI tool and from Jenkins and from Jira and from everything, the MVP, the bare minimum. This is a template that I made for people who go through my course. We actually fill out this template in the course, but this is what I start with. Either it's a notion, it could be an Excel spreadsheet or a Google slide, but you just have your metrics and then it's somebody's job once a month to figure it out. It is some manual work, but that I guarantee after three months of doing that, you know exactly where to focus and then it's the right time to invest in all that automated tooling. So if you've hesitated to get started because maybe you don't have access to all of that data in an automated way, you don't need to, you can do something really lightweight so that you can track it and get the information and the action that you need without having to do this like full instrumentation and kind of go overkill on stuff. Yeah, that's a really good point because software engineers being engineers, instead of answering yeah. the question yeah. once, we want to be able to answer it at any time. So we will we won't have these metrics until we have the perfect solution to track these metrics and, and bring them in. And that's funny because I, I did gravitate to that a little bit because I thought, Mm-hmm. If I've got problems with people that aren't, they know about these metrics, but they're not collecting them. Maybe if I had an automated tool for them, it would help them. But 
I also sometimes think, well, if they're not willing to even take the effort to go get them once themselves manually, how much are they really caring about any of this stuff? If they're not driven to just spend an hour or two or three one time to just say, "Hmm, I'm just curious, like what was our last, what did our last month look like? If they're not willing to do that, then it's almost like that itself is a metric on your desire to improve the team. Absolutely, so. Brett. You've hit it. You've hit it on the head. So, like I said, there's no perfect checklist of this. These are the things that you must measure to have a high-performing team. There's no thresholds that a high-performing team deploys one time per day, or they deploy four times per day. There just is no benchmark or threshold that tells you about that. It highly depends on your company goals, your business objectives, and then what your team is focusing on. So if people want to get a tool because they just want something that's spoon fed to them, mm-hmm. do these things like it just doesn't exist. So you got to put in a bit of effort and that might look like you going through and manually getting these metrics and calculating them for a couple months before you decide to make the investment in some better tooling. Right. Well, you've been a fantastic guest as always. I learned so much. We've got some Q&A. We've got at least one question. The one we had waiting in the queue was around how do you handle retraining the candidates who are leaving in the great recession only to get bigger paychecks Mm. and the management doesn't approve to give them a raise. It's disheartening to see people learning and switching just when they are exactly ready and trained. Yeah, this is a tough one. If your workforce is optimizing for salary when they're making a choice of where to work, there's not much you can do because someone is going to come along and offer them a bigger paycheck and they're going to leave. But if you're in a position where pay isn't always going to be the first thing. What you can do is try to emphasize the other benefits that your company might offer. It could be things like working on a certain technology, working remotely, flexible time, four-day work week, those kinds of things. It can also be a just a difference in what that person is looking for in their career. Some people don't want to work for a big company. Some people want to work for a small company. So it's all about finding that value proposition that what can that person get from your team that they can't get anywhere else if you're not able to compete on salary. And quite honestly, if you can't compete on salary, you should expect that some people are going to leave. It's just kind of unfortunate truth. Yeah, it is weird, though, that someone would go through, you would think it's weird that someone would go through a, an in-doc if they didn't like the salary to begin with. But mm-hmm. sometimes it might just be that they applied to 20 jobs or 50, and you got them first, but then another one finally came through. Yeah, One experience I've had, because I've worked in l- multiple levels of government, and mm-hmm. government is known for not paying the best, right? But I had a great experience w- where with another great manager for a couple of years where he knew that he couldn't pay the top dollar that consulting companies would and other non-government institutions. So he would use his power and his one of the things he controlled was our time off. So quite often, if he knew you really pushed through something last week, he would, t- he would just say, just take the rest of the day off today or take a half day off tomorrow. Or he would let you work from home, even though there was not a corporate policy yet, this was a long time ago, to work from home, he would let you do mm-hmm. it on occasion uh, and he would volunteer this stuff to you because it was within his power to give you that that better experience. He also made sure that everyone was gone at five. He would walk around the office at five fifteen. He's like, "Why are you still here? Get out!" But like he was very much focused on the other things he could control because he couldn't change the HR policy around that the what we were getting paid. And I loved yeah. that because he kept a lot of people there a long time because he made it wonderful to work there. Maybe not the best paying job, but 
it was hard to imagine going to a place where we were all going to have to work 10 hour days, had very few days off. And he was just mm -hmm. handing out, oh, you just finished that email migration. Well, take, take Friday off. And he would just sort of forget, yeah. forget to put in the HR request that you sent him. And he would often just come back to you with your little slip. This is back in the paper days. Mm -hmm. He would hand it to you and just say, hey, that, that two days you took off last week, you can have it back or whatever. Mm -hmm. So he did, he yeah. did a lot of cool stuff like that, that I think it, it kept us a lot of us around a lot longer than we would have been if it was just mm -hmm. focused on money. Yeah, that's a great example of using whatever lever that you have to mm -hmm. kind of make it a team that people want to stay yeah. working, working for. That's a, that's a great question. We could talk about that forever. But if you can control any of that stuff, like maybe you can control, maybe you can help update and modernize some of your platform that people are working on. So they're working with cool stuff. That's also a factor mm -hmm. for engineers, right? If they're working on 15-year-old code that's out, way out of date and extremely frustrating to work with and is still monolithic and all those sort of problems we associate with legacy code, then that is another factor that might affect teams, might affect their happiness if they're not, if they're seeing these other jobs that pay well and are using Kubernetes and all these cool things mm -hmm. and you're not, that's also another issue that I have seen people leave. But mostly I, f I find that people leave, the, leave when they don't like their boss. That's like the number one factor I, I think is they don't like who they work for. So- mm -hmm. That nice. is true. People quit their bosses, <laughs> not their jobs in a lot of situations. So. Yeah. Great yeah. question. Security is a product. Does that help for security to be taken more seriously by de DevOps teams? Hmm. What's your take here, Brett? As long as management respects it and incentivizes it. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think the product itself does anything. We've all implemented dashboards that no one cared about. And I look at security as a product as probably another dashboard. That's why I like to get my trend. I don't know about you, but the thing I try to always do nowadays is get everything I want them to care about in front of them where they work. So if they're in a GitHub, I try to get that stuff into a check in the PR, whatever it is, mm -hmm. image scanning, dependabot alerts, whatever. I try to get that right in their tool, in their face, because if it's something else that they have to go somewhere else for, yeah. and it's not in their editor, it's not in their PR review, it's not in the ticketing system. Not, and not in the CI. Yeah. It's just another thing they have to go and look at. And yeah. so if they're using a security tool and that somehow is auditing or checking, like maybe it's CodeQL in GitHub and it's checking the the code for quality, any potential security risks in the code they're writing, get that in CodeQL so it's in their PR, have that run in the PR so it becomes mm -hmm. a review step before the PR is approved. If it's some other tool elsewhere that they never see, they can just ignore it. That's my, mm -hmm. what do you think, Laura? No, I have the same opinion as you. So purchasing a tool doesn't mean that the culture changes. You have to incentivize the right behavior as well and then reduce friction so that it's trivial to do the right thing. Anytime it's the right thing, but it takes mental effort to do it, people are just less likely to do the right thing. So make it easy for them. Yeah, we all have tool bloat at this point. We have so many tools. So yeah. many dashboards, so many web. I mean, no one's reading their email from any of these tools anymore because it's just flooding our inboxes and it's we garbage. don't see it. I mean, I've lost count of the number of teams that the PR alerts them an email that there's a PR right waiting for their review, but we all have to still go in Slack and say, hey, is anyone available from the team to review my PR? Because we know they're not checking their inbox, but maybe once yeah. a day if they're trying to be productive. One other thing too, is I have a great example of real world scenario where a team was using security tools in GitHub and using white source. I'm not picking on the company, but white source was not, was used by the security team to analyze their code, analyze their images, analyze their servers, whatever, all those different white source features of that, of that product. 
And that was not tied into anything the developer did. So developers were completely mm -hmm. unaware of whether they were doing good by white sources metrics. And the security team would only come when they didn't like something. So it was this very like, thrown over the wall it's approach. A, yeah. It's not a very healthy relationship when you only hear yeah. from someone when you've done something wrong. <laughs> right. Which is the old yeah. school security team, right? That's before we Definitely. had DevSecOps. Definitely. That's the whole reason the SEC is in the middle is they're trying to be partners. Yeah. But I did see behavior change when the same thing that thing was doing, which I think at the time was image scanning, we just brought that in with Trivi or Sneak or some tool, mm -hmm. brought it into GitHub as a PR step. It was done automatically. The thing that I want next for that particular example that they don't have is I want to see if the PR, if it can count the main branch or my, my default branch against the current branch. So I know if the PR improves or hurts my CVE count, for example, because a lot of times these things, these numbers don't mean anything to you because you don't know if that's good or bad. And I don't have a tool yet that does that, but I keep asking around to the trivia and other scanners to say, hey, could I get a comparison where I show it like a diff of before and after so that people can have an understanding, does my PR introduce, you know, I added a new VS code JavaScript dependency. Does that mm -hmm. suddenly make our security worse? I don't know. Mm -hmm. So I'm always trying, you know, my love nowadays is just focusing on solving people's problems, giving them more information and automation. And focusing mm -hmm. on the automation is a way to change behavior by just empowering yeah. people. That's Automation's the key, Brett. Automation's the key. All right. I think that was the last question. So I think we're going to end it here. Yeah. Wonderful. Good note to end it. Automation is everything. Put it on my gravestone. Yeah. So you can check out our course. We've said this a couple of times, but yeah. check out Laura's course on team performance, improving your engineering team's performance. Yeah. Let thanks, Brett. And if you want to learn more about what I do, what it is that engineering leadership coaching can help you with. Just go to lauratako.com. My courses are there. You can find my newsletter there. All my blog articles are on my website with the exception of a few that I've linked, but check it out. It's free. All my blog stuff. Coaching yeah. not free. And get on my newsletter. <laughs> my newsletter is free. Yeah. Yeah. Get on the newsletter. I love it. I read it. It's great. It makes me step back and realize how much I have to learn about being a human in tech. Yeah. Thanks, Brett. That's a glowing endorsement. Hmm. I'm glad to have you here. All right, everyone, yeah. you have your orders. Go click the links, check this stuff out, and we will see you next week here. Ciao, everybody. Great. See ya. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. Mm -hmm.